For our scripture reading now, we turn back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. Here is Israel at Mount Sinai. Our theme in this sermon series that we're getting back to this morning is what I'm calling the habits of grace. The habits of grace, the Christian life that we're called to live. It is a life about experiencing God's grace, and we do in fact experience it in part as He is pleased to smile upon our regular, our habitual efforts to seek and serve Him. The habits of grace. And what we have focused on for a while now are the elements of worship that make up the church service on Sunday mornings. Those habits. What exactly do we do as a matter of routine beginning at 9 a.m. on Sundays? And what we've done, for the most part, is to make our way through our Sunday morning worship service, item after item, and have considered what God's Word has to say about each one, starting with the fact that we are called to worship, as we are now. And then we considered the call to worship, singing, praying, the reading of the Word, the preaching of the Word, the hearing of the Word, the sacrament of baptism, the administration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, our partaking in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and finally, fittingly, the benediction. So we have made our way from start to finish through the worship service that we take up Sunday after Sunday. So we've spent all this time so far talking about the way Sunday gets started with the worship service. Now it's time, I think this week and next, to take a step back and think about Sunday as a whole, as a whole day. After all, there's a reason why we meet for worship on Sunday, and the reason is that Sunday is now God's Sabbath day. So if this is going to be a sermon series about the habits and, ri- habits and rhythms of the Christian life, well then, we cannot leave out the subject of the Sabbath day, this weekly rhythm that God himself has set up for us. This is surely one of the defining habits of the Christian life. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20. We are going to focus on the fourth commandment beginning at verse 8, but we'll start at the beginning of the chapter. Listen to Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we do bless you for your commandments. For by them we would live. We pray that you would bless us now as we reflect upon the Sabbath commandment today, on this, the first day of the week. And we pray this in the name of the Lord, on the Lord's day. Amen. Last time we were in this room on the first day of the week, last Sunday morning, we sang the hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. And we highlighted in the service, and then again in the sermon discussion, I think, we highlighted the opening line of that hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, Pilgrim Through This Barren Land. Pilgrim Through This Barren Land. The point is, as Christians, we're making our way through this world, and spiritually speaking, it is not hospitable. Spiritually speaking, this world is a barren land that we have to make our way through on our way to glory. We're living in a world where our God is not worshipped, where our Savior is not trusted, where our faith is not supported. Pilgrim through this barren land. And just that phrase, brings together a variety of helpful images. Just imagine you're forced to make an arduous trek across a barren desert. Sun's beating down. Winds are whipping up. Terrain is tough. You've been traveling for a while. All you've got to sustain you is what you've got in your pack and in your pockets. And with the passing of time and with the crossing of miles, those supplies are dwindling and you're feeling it. It's not just your supplies that are becoming depleted. You are too. And that's when, on the horizon, you see an oasis. That's when on the horizon you see a place that is not barren like the terrain that you've been traveling on. And it's just in time. Perfect timing. Just what you need. Just when you need it. It's a place where you can stop and rest and eat and drink and resupply for the next phase of the journey. Even better, it's a place where you can do all of that in the company of your fellow traveler. Well, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what the Sabbath day is for us, for our souls. That's what the Sabbath day is for us spiritually. It is a weekly 
oasis for our souls. It's one whole day in seven when we get to stop and rest and feast and resupply for the next phase of the journey. And even better, it's a day when we get to do all of that with one another as fellow pilgrims. And here's what makes it even better than the earthly analogy, the earthly oasis as you're making your way through an earthly desert. First of all, when you're trekking across an earthly desert, you may have no idea when you're going to come upon the next oasis. You may not even know if there are any out there at all. And you may start to wonder and worry if you're going to die before you get to the next one as your supplies keep dwindling. And you do too. And second of all, even when you finally do see one at a distance with your weary eyes, you might start to wonder and worry if it's just a mirage, right? Your eyes are playing tricks. You're going to get closer and find that there's nothing really there. And at that point, you're going to have to find a way to keep going depleted, but you're not sure if you can. It's even worse, isn't it, when you get your hopes up, only to have those hopes dashed on on the rocks of that barren desert because it was just a mirage. Well, brothers and sisters, not so with the Sabbath When it comes to the Sabbath day, you're not dealing with either one of those two fears. First of all, it's every week. You can count on it. By God's own provision and promise, it's every week. You don't have to worry about when the next one's coming. You know very well when it's coming. It's on the calendar. And then second of all, you also don't have to worry if it's going to turn out not to be real some kind of spiritual mirage, a trick, a mere trick that's played with the eyes of a desperate faith. No, it's real. The rest and the replenishment and the resupply, it's all real. Thank God for it. So we're going to consider together today the gift that is this weekly oasis for our souls And I thought that a good place to start here this morning would be to notice what our Westminster Confession of Faith has to say about the Sabbath day. And so what I want you to do right now is take your hymnal and turn way to the back, way past the hymns. Turn to page 861. 861, there in the back of your hymnal, 861, or you can just listen as I read. Our Confession of Faith, as you can see there, has a whole chapter that's devoted to worship and the Sabbath day, and it's the last two sections in the chapter, sections 7 and 8, that talk about the Sabbath day, the commandment that it is the gift that it is. So page 861 in the hymnal, you see Roman numeral section 7 there towards the top. Here's what our confession of faith confesses. Section 7. 
First of all, as it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Let's keep going. One more. Section 8. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So that is what our Westminster Confession of Faith confesses about the Sabbath commandment. And I realize there's a lot in there. It confesses that it is, in fact, a commandment of God. That's section 7. And then it also describes what's involved in keeping the Sabbath commandment. That's section 8. So I wanted, to, I wanted to start there today. I thought it would be good to notice what our confession of faith has to say. That's a good starting point. But of course it is just that. It's only a starting point. The men who wrote the confession of faith in the 1640s, they'd have been the first to say, don't believe it just because we say it. They'd have said, believe it because you're persuaded the Bible actually teaches it. Which is why... With the whole of the confession, from start to finish, they provided scripture proofs to back up what they taught, not just about this, but about all of it. They pointed to scripture, and rightly so. And so we will follow their pointing us to scripture, and we're going to turn to one of the passages they point to. If we're going to think about the Sabbath day in scripture, well, Exodus 20 is a very good and natural place to go. So I I want to make four points here as we reflect upon the fourth commandment as we find it here in Exodus 20 and then begin to look beyond it. Four points I want to make, and I'll go ahead and tell you right now what they are. The first is the foundation of the commandment. The second is the substance of it. The third is the pattern for it. And then the fourth is the fulfillment of it. So those four, the foundation of the commandment, the substance of it, the pattern for it, and the fulfillment of it. First of all, the foundation of the commandment, and here is where I want to back up to the beginning of the chapter. Before we even get to the fourth commandment, look at verse 1 again, verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The point is, whenever you turn to the Ten Commandments, always bear in mind, at least in the back of your mind, 
what is sometimes called the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The point is Israel was only called to obedience as they were standing upon the foundation of God's grace which had rescued them. Israel was called to obedience as those who had already been redeemed by God from slavery in Egypt. They were not called to obedience as a way of earning God's favor so that he would rescue them. They were called to obedience because he already had. They're already out of Egypt at this point. That's not hanging in the balance. He has saved them. And that's still true for us as Christians. For us as the Christian church, and it still applies to the Sabbath commandment. To this day, we're called to keep one day holy, not as a way of earning God's favor so that he'll save us from the slavery of sin, but because he already has. He already has saved us, thanks to the life and death of Jesus. He already has saved us, thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit. We're called to keep one day holy, not so that we'll become the redeemed people of God by virtue of our obedience, but because we already are the redeemed people of God by virtue of His grace, and Sabbath-keeping is just one way that we show it. And this radically transforms the way we think about Sunday, or at least it ought to. This is why I wanted us to start here today before we got to the commandment itself. The fact that we're called to keep one day holy, that doesn't weigh upon us as some kind of regrettable, back-breaking burden that we wish we could be free from, but, oh, I guess we'll, we'll keep it in some desperate attempt to earn the favor of God. No, the Sabbath, this is a gift we've been given because we have been redeemed. Because we are the people of God. And this is just one way that we show it and even rejoice in it. Thank God for it, for the gift that is this one holy day in seven. That's the foundation of the commandment. Now, secondly, standing upon that foundation, what's the substance of the commandment? In other words... What were they actually called, commanded to do and not do? Well, take a look again at verse 8. Verses 8 through 10. God says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. So that's the heart of the matter. Israel was commanded by God to keep one day, the seventh day of the week, holy to God by not working on it. They were commanded by God that the seventh day of the week was supposed to be a very different kind of day, unlike the others. The fact that they were told to remember the Sabbath day, that very way of putting it implies that this is something they were already familiar with. And they were. And you can tell that from just a few chapters before in chapter 16. 
The fourth commandment was not setting something before them that was brand new to them. They already had some sense of this. That they were commanded by God to keep this day holy by not working on it. Now, to be clear, this was not anti-work. Work is good, and it always has been. It's a good thing from God, and we ought to be grateful for it. Work is a precious gift from God. The commandment wasn't anti-work, not at all. But Israel was commanded to keep one day free from it, insofar as they could. And though it's not spelled out here in Exodus 20... Still, we can piece together some clues that we get from elsewhere in the Old Testament. The reason why they were supposed to stop working on that day, even though work is good, was so that they might train their attention on the worship of God instead in a peculiar way. And that included trusting in God that he would provide for them even if they put their work down that whole day. It was a matter of setting aside work in order to focus instead on worship in some way. So, for example, in the book of Leviticus, where they're taught again about their weekly Sabbath day, it says there in Leviticus that the day was for the purpose of holy convocation. It's a great phrase. Holy convocation. Holy gathering as the people of God. So it was, a ne- it was never a matter of setting work aside for the purpose of inactivity. Just sitting around and doing nothing all day and waiting for the next day. It was never for the purpose of inactivity. It was always a matter of setting aside work for the purpose of a different kind of activity. Which was training their attention on God and on the worship of God together. That's the substance of the command. Now third, what we'll call the pattern of the commandment, and this is found in verse 11. Take a look again at verse 11, and it is printed there in your bulletin if that helps. Verse 11, after the commandment itself, you have this reason given. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, this points us back to almost the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, where it says, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's Genesis 2. The point is, there's a model for this commandment in God's work of creation. There's an example that God was setting. There's a pattern that he was providing. All of the work that had to be done for the sake of ordering and filling creation, God did it in six days, and then the next day, he didn't. There wasn't anything left to do. He didn't keep working in the way that he had been working. And that's an example that God was setting for us. It's not like God actually needed a breather. Of course he didn't. 
And for that matter, it's not like God was actually working in time. God himself transcends time. And so we're dealing with something mind-blowing here. The the work of, of God who transcends time, creating time in a way that's related to us in terms of time. God was pleased to go about his work from our vantage point in a way that had this six days and then one day pattern to it. Well, God was establishing a pattern for our sakes, not for his own. Even in the beginning, this was God being good to us. That's the pattern for the commandment. And that brings us to the fourth of the four that I wanted to mention this morning, which is the fulfillment of the commandment. We've talked about the foundation for it in the preface to the Ten Commandments. We've talked about the substance of it. What exactly were they called to do and not do? We've looked back to creation itself to see God establishing a pattern for it. But now, fourth and final, how is this commandment fulfilled? And and this is the million-dollar question for us today as the people of the Christian church in, in the New Covenant era. So this point takes us beyond the book of Exodus, takes us beyond the Old Testament. This one takes us to Jesus Christ and to the life that we're called to live in him. The fourth commandment given to Israel by Moses at Mount Sinai after they were rescued from Egypt That commandment, no doubt, was given in that particular moment of time. But there's something in the commandment that transcends that particular moment in time. The principle that there's supposed to be one holy day in seven that we give to God because he's given it to us, that principle lives on. And we can say now it lives on in Jesus who lives In the fullness of time, the Son of God came into the world. The Son of God came into time. In God's good time, it was time for a new way of relating to time. Now Jesus is the Lord. Well, sure enough, now the Sabbath commandment is fulfilled in what we call, in what Scripture calls, the Lord's day. The Sabbath commandment abides. Of course it does. One of the ten. The Sabbath commandment abides, and now it's to be found in the requirement that the first day of the week is the day when the church stops working and trains its attention instead on God and on his worship. Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, and that changed everything. From that point forward, What you find in the New Testament is that it's the first day of the week when the disciples of Jesus assemble for, that phrase again, holy convocation. Right after he was raised from the dead. Apparently it became the most natural thing in the world for them that the first day of the week was now going to be the week when they got together as his followers. Even in those first few weeks, when they were still struggling to believe that it had actually happened. 
that he really had been raised from the dead. Even then, the first day of the week begins to take on this new Sabbath significance. And then as you keep reading the New Testament, you get further glimpses of it. For example, Acts chapter 20. You don't need to turn there if you don't want, but just listen. This is Paul going about, as he did, preaching the gospel, planting churches, encouraging the followers of Christ wherever he went. Acts chapter 20 says this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And you think our sermons are long. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, you know what that is? That is holy convocation. The implication being it's the first day of the week that's now that day of the week for the people of God. That's the day when they get together. You get another hint of it in one of Paul's letters. 1 Corinthians 16, near the end of that long letter, and he's giving them instructions about the offering that the church is supposed to take. 1 Corinthians 16 begins like this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. The implication being it's the first day of the week that now has that significance to it. That Sabbath significance as the people of God come together and consider their life together as the followers of Christ. Think of it this way. It's in the book of Revelation where it's first called the Lord's Day. Think of it this way. The Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is the Sabbath day given its Christian name. The Lord's Day is the Sabbath day given its Christian name. It's the Sabbath day come to fruition in the age of the Christian church. Now in Jesus, it's the first day of the week. It's Resurrection Day when we get to stop and rest. And rejoice and worship and then rise up for the days of work to follow. Thank God for it. And that's exactly what I want to drive home here at the end. Thank God for it. Brothers and sisters, a word about gratitude. We ought to be grateful for this commandment. And and think about that, just putting it that way. We ought to be grateful for the commandment. And that's because commandments are something that we can and ought to be grateful for. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the rumors. Commandments are not prisons, including this one. Commandments from God, from a God who's loving and wise and holy from a God who made us and who redeemed us. His commandments are gifts. They are not prison. And this one's no exception to that rule. We ought to be grateful for it. So it is true to say 
that we are required to keep one day holy unto God. It's true to say that we must, as an obligation, we're commanded to keep one holy day unto God. But it's also true to say that we get to. And I wonder if you'd be willing to put it that way. We get to. We're blessed in this way. We're privileged in this way. We get to keep a day holy to God. And it is easy to lose sight of that. This is my own experience. Maybe you can relate to this. I've lived so many years now thinking about Sunday as a different kind of day that it is easy for me to lose sight of the good gift that the Sabbath is. It's easy for me to take it for granted. And all I've got to do to come back to my senses and be reminded of the gift that it is, all I've got to do is close my eyes and imagine, what if it weren't holy? Imagine a world like that. Imagine a life A Christian life like that. What if all seven days were pretty much the same? For that matter, maybe we wouldn't even count in seven. What would be the point of it? What if all days were pretty much the same and we didn't have this one that's a God-given oasis for our soul? All I've got to do is stop and imagine what life would be like if it were simply an uninterrupted stream of days about earthly things. And and maybe you can relate to this. When I imagine that, I shudder. I recoil. That scares me. When I imagine that, then I'm reminded in a slightly jarring way, of the good gift that the Sabbath is. I wouldn't want it any other way, not in this world. Not until we reach the new world. Not until we enter into the everlasting Sabbath of God. Brothers and sisters, we do sing that hymn. We pray that prayer. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. Pilgrim through this barren land. And our great God replies, in effect, I will. I will guide you through a land like that. And I will guide you in part by giving you this one day as an oasis for your souls. Every week, you can count on it. And it's no mirage. You can count on it. So let's take him up on it. Every week, on the first day of the week, may it be so, and amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that that frightening imaginary scenario is not true. It is not reality. It is not true. That life is just an uninterrupted stream of days about earthly things. Thank you that you've given us this one in seven. 
the weekly Sabbath. And thank you for the marker that it is now that Jesus was raised from the dead on our behalf. So we pray that you would grant us grace to be grateful for it, to be renewed in our devotion to it, in our devotion to the Lord whose day it is. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.